Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett. And I'm Brian Colbert-Kennedy. Teddy's not here today. Why is that? Uh, mental health day, I think you took. <laughs> All right. Just, uh, you know, look, uh, self-care. It's fair. Self-care. On that note, uh, today's question is, why the hell does kids' cancer exist? And what do we do to make it go away forever? Feels like a good question. Yeah. Yeah. Our guest, and one of my favorite humans, whether he likes it or not, uh, is Jay Scott. Uh, Jay is the co-executive director of the Alex's Lemonade Stamp Foundation, uh, along with his wife, Liz, who is unable to participate, but I also don't blame her. Yeah. You know? Um, in all seriousness, uh, seriousness, <sighs> you know, this was a pretty tremendous conversation, and my keyboard is wet from salty man tears, and that's that. <sighs> yeah. Very, very cool conversation, but but yeah, boy, can it Deep, be. Deep, inspiring yeah. as hell, rough. But- it was rough. Unnecessary. Yeah. But but God, man. Wow. Very very inspirational though. So cool to well, you know, you, you guys will hear. You guys will hear. Yeah. Yeah. Again, hopefully one of those ones where you guys are really inspired to do the thing at the end of it. And and uh uh thank you, Quint, for taking me to Alex's Lemonade Stand this year in Los Angeles. It was really, really fantastic. And uh, I'm so glad that we went and now I want to be a part of it all the time. Yep. Yeah, quick note, we didn't really get into him too much. Yeah. Uh, they have a variety of events around the country uh, for our Los Angeles listeners. Every September, there's the LA Loves Alex's Lemonade Stamp Foundation, uh, which involves about 100 of America's greatest chefs and mixologists and wine and things like that. Uh, they raise about a million and a half dollars yeah. in the afternoon uh, towards kids' cancer research and travel, and it is a fucking awesome time. So... We'll talk more about that yeah. as we get closer to it, because we are supporters of it, formally and informally, not just in our drinking on the day. No, right. Yeah. All right. Let's go have a hell of a conversation with Jay. Yep. Sounds good. Our guest today is Jay Scott, and together we're asking, why does kids' cancer exist? Isn't the world uh, fucked up enough as it is? And how do we make it go away forever and ever? And uh, my main man on the line is going to help us answer that question. Jay, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here, and I look forward to speaking with you guys. Yeah. Say that now. (laughs) We're very excited. Um, All right, Jay, let's just get started by um, just tell everybody who you are and, and what you do. Well, my name is Jay Scott, and uh, I am one of the executive directors of an organization called Alex's Lemonade Stand Foundation. We're uh, a charity with a weird name, but (laughs) we spend our lives figuring out ways to help kids with cancer. And we are the um, one of the largest childhood cancer charities in the world. And and you are awesome. And in full disclosure, I am a proud supporter of your organization, and hopefully, will continue to be if you let me be after this conversation. Jay, you mentioned the the weird name of your uh, organization. Do you mind just spending uh, a minute telling us uh, why you have that name and where the organization came from? Sure. Well, um, Alex was my daughter. She was our second child. And um, she was diagnosed with cancer when she was about about one, just two days before her first birthday. And she fought cancer her whole life. But when she was about four, she decided that she wanted to do something to help the doctors that were helping her. So she want, told us she wanted to set up a lemonade stand in, in our front yard. We thought it was a cute idea. We kind of teased her a little bit because we like to tease in our family that she was going to give them a check for 5 or $10. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, her first stand, she raised 2000 then 12000 then 18000 And then, oh. you know, she, she died when she was eight and a half. But before she died, she had raised over a million dollars. And so if you fast forward to today, what she started, you know, has become 
you know, uh, a pretty significant organization. That's uh, tragic and and incredible. And and as always, uh, our condolences on on your loss. Uh, And she seems like she was a a wonderful human being. So if you could do a very quick fast forward, how much money have you guys raised since then? You know, it's interesting, you know, when when you're a smaller organization, you count the thousands of dollars and then it goes to the millions. And, you know, we're, we're probably around 200 million, but we have the last we've updated our website was 150 because mm-hmm. I think 50 millions is a good amount. So we're, we're, we're approaching 200 million. That's pretty That's incredible. insane. How, how That's old is the organization? Let's see about, about 12 years old, 13, coming 13 years old. Now, we don't usually dig too much in, into the past. We like to work on sort of action steps and moving forward and right. setting up context for our listeners to take action and, and help out. But uh, I, I wonder if you can talk us through a little bit uh, th- those moments after Alex passed away where you guys decided to to continue to the cause and to grow it into something more formal and, and how what that experience has been like for the past uh, 13 years. Yeah, I think, you know, the reason that when Alex died, we thought what she started would go away, you know, because she was the the driving force behind it. She was the she was sort of the the train engine that made the whole thing move and move these people around the world to to come out and help her um, raise money. But what happened was it, you know, it would have been easier for my wife and I just to move on with the next chapter of our life. But we heard from so many other childhood cancer parents at the time that that said things like you know, you guys need to keep this going because you can help my kid. My kid is still fighting cancer. Mm-hmm. And and so I'll give the credit to my wife because I didn't really, I wasn't, I wasn't into it with my whole heart, but my wife said, listen, we have a chance to help a lot of kids if we can do this right and get this organization going and, and get it, get it really, you know, we're, we're the only ones that could do it because we're Alex's parents. And so, you know, it was because of Liz that that we we decided to keep things going. And up until the time that she died, we were part of another organization. It was a community foundation. We were just one fund out of um, a thousand funds that they had. And, you know, when she died, they said, listen, you guys can't continue to be part of this fund. So we had to decide, do we want to become our standalone organization or do we want to do away with it? And, you know, when, when my wife made me realize that we have a chance to help kids and change the world to childhood cancer. We thought, you know what? We don't want other families to go through what we've done, had to mm-hmm. go through. Let's do this. Can I ask what your hesitations were? The pain. You know, it's when you have a kid with cancer and they, it's, it's a tough thing. And when they die, it's the most difficult thing in the world. And, you know, I think it was fear of reliving that, that pain over and over again, either, by telling Alex a story or by getting close to other kids with cancer that mm-hmm. you know, those kids would die. I was afraid that we would, you know, relive that pain again and again. But, you know, we realized that it's a small price to pay to be able to help, to help kids. And so we pushed on, we got through it. It was the, the early years were difficult telling Alex a story over and over again, but now, you know, it's a joy to tell it. And, meeting the kids whose lives we've been able to save is amazing, but it's still so difficult when we get to know kids and they, and they do pass away. Sure. Sure. Well, you are working hard to put an end to that. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty incredible. What were you doing, uh, as a career before this? Uh, I, I was a salesman 
um, in a publishing company. And, and, you know, selfishly, that's one of the reasons I didn't, I didn't want to do this because I was making a lot of money and, and, and I didn't want to give up that, that income, you know, my wife is much smarter than me. And she said, listen, <laughs> there's more to life than money and you'll have time down the road to make money. So we're going to help people right now. So your, your, your full-time job is this? Yes, that's wow. what we do that's full-time, you know, every day, 24 hours a day. It's all we think about. Wow. That's, it's pretty incredible. We're, we're thankful for what you're doing out there. All right. Yeah, it's quite necessary. All right, so we'll uh, uh, we'll get into it a little bit more here. Um, what we usually like to do, uh, Jay, is you know set up some context for for the issue at hand and uh, figure out how we can solve it, and specifically how uh, our listeners can take um, steps, actually take action to uh, to to support you and uh, and what you guys do. So uh, uh, Quinn will get started with that. And, let's and let's do this. So Jay, if, you, if you've uh, managed to listen to a few of our past episodes, uh, one uh, apologies. Uh, for you'll never get that time in your life back. Uh, and two, uh, you might have heard us ask this question before. Instead of saying, tell us your life story, which we just did, we like to ask Jay, why are you vital to the survival of the species? Why am I vital to the survival of the species? Uh-huh. I think one of the things that we do besides helping kids with cancer is we teach people that anybody can make a difference in the world. And so I think that's one of the one of the things that Alex taught people you know, before before she came up with this crazy idea of setting up a lemonade stand to help kids with cancer. You would see lemonade stands. You wouldn't really see them set up to help various causes. But now there's thousands and thousands of lemonade stands that kids are setting up every year to help all kinds of different causes, which we think is great. You know, she sort of started a movement to help kids with cancer, but she started a movement that would teach kids that they can make a difference. They can impact the world. And I think if you can teach kids at a young age, they can impact the world. That makes the whole world a better place. So I wouldn't say that I'm vital in that, but I would say that I was partially responsible for raising Alex. So in that way, I'm a little bit. <laughs> we'll take it, man. You we'll, deserve we'll some credit, the credit there. And it is, it is tremendous to see. And we've talked about this in a variety of other issues from climate change uh, and, and things like that. Uh, kids are much more aware than they've ever been. They're much more activated than they've ever been. Uh, whether they should be or they need to be uh, is a different question because, you know, there's an argument to they, they should be able to just be children. Uh, yep. But at the same time, uh, it is there's there's a real pride in watching your kids uh, get excited about something they really care about. I think it's amazing. The, 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 you know, when I was a kid and, and, you know, we would have these boxes for Halloween, the UNICEF boxes. Mm-hmm. I hated doing it sure. <laughs> because I didn't understand what it was doing. But I think kids are they're much more informed nowadays about about the world and about things that they can do to to make a difference and they really they're passionate 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 about it we've had we've had kids several kids on on the podcast as guests and it's like you know they're 17 years old or whatever and you there's no chance in hell that they're not going to be like world changers and in, in the near future right oh absolutely right. very I, impressive my wife just got an email yesterday from a guy and um it was totally out of the blue and he you know he started off by saying you know this is might seem as a little bit of an unusual email I'm sending you, but I'm an, I'm an author and I have a novel coming out and I wanted to let you know that the main character in the book is based on your daughter because I read her obituary in 2004 and I cut it out 
And I was so touched by what she had done in her young life. And and when he was coming up with a novel, he was thinking about what the character would be like. And and in this particular novel, he modeled it after Alex. And you know, she died 14 years ago. And mm. for him to just email us now is it's pretty incredible. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty special. Wow. All right, so let's uh, let me take a quick step back and just uh, throw some numbers at some people, and then you know, numbers aren't the thing that I think we've <laughs> discovered with the climate and things like that in the past few years. Num- numbers, uh, stats don't move the needle for people, but I want to paint a picture for folks so we can keep digging into the story and really understand what's going on here. So uh, I'm just going right off the Alex's website here. Every year, uh, 250,000 plus new cases of cancer affect children under the age of 20 uh, worldwide. Uh, it is the childhood cancer is a leading cause of death by disease in children under the age of 19. Uh, so it's That's one, in the U.S. That's yeah, in, the, right, in the U.S., yeah. right. About one in uh, 285 children in the U.S. will be diagnosed with cancer by the time they're 20. Two-thirds of childhood cancer patients will have long-lasting chronic conditions from treatment. And yet, uh, despite all this, childhood cancer research receives just 4% of the annual budget from the National Cancer Institute. And we're going to dig a little more into that and what childhood cancer uh, really means. So uh, let, let's really focus on our question this week, which is why the hell does kids cancer exist and how do we make it go away forever? Jay, uh, talk us through a little bit. Are there cancers that specifically target children or cancers kids are more likely to get? Sort of when we talk about kids cancer, what does that actually mean? Yeah, so most cancers that kids get are cancers that are just that. They're cancers that kids get. And it's very rare if an adult gets them. They're unique to kids. There's about 26 different cancers that kids get. You know, one of the ones that probably overlaps the most is acute leukemia, where adults get that. But it's it's the most common childhood cancer. Mm-hmm. But we have met, you know, I, I know an adult, I, I'm 50 years old. I know a woman who is, I think she's 49 and she has a childhood cancer. It's extremely rare, but it does happen occasionally. But kids don't get things like, I'm sure there's exceptions to every rule, but kids typically don't get lung cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, things Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Because those are a lot of times take years to develop, or sometimes they're from, from the outside world causing them. But kids' cancers are usually, they think more and more that there's a genetic component. You know, when Alex was diagnosed, we were told, no, this is just sort of a random occurrence. Now they think 30 to 40 percent of kids' cancers have a genetic component where the kid is predisposed to get the cancer. And and is now 14 years on with how many, how much science has been uncovered? And, and obviously we have a long way to go. I know a lot of it has been, we've found out what we don't know. Uh, for Alex's specific cancer, is that uh, is, is that notion been applied that it is? Uh, may have probably been hereditary genetic in some way? You know, we haven't had Alex mm. Alex's specific case tested, but yes, some neuroblastomas, you have a predisposition, you know, but there's been some crazy, crazy advances in neuroblastoma and, and other childhood cancer. So one of the big problems with childhood cancer is the treatment. So adults get chemotherapy, their bodies get beat up from it, right. but they bounce back. Right. Kids' bodies are growing so fast, and the way chemotherapy works is it is it is it kills rapidly dividing cells. Well, kids, a lot of the normal cells in their body are rapidly dividing because sure. they're growing, and so the chemotherapy attacks the cancer and it attacks the good cells. Mm-hmm. And so what that does is it, it that you know you said two thirds of kids have some lifelong side effects. It gives them lifelong side effects 
not not always just from the cancer, but a lot of times from the treatment. And those side effects could be secondary cancers from the treatment. We know a kid now, very well, Tony. Actually, I just I just went to see him the other night in the hospital. He's been in the hospital since I believe April. So what's that? Jeez. Seven months. So yeah. Tony beat neuroblastoma, which was the same cancer that Alex had. And can you uh, just do me a favor, take a quick pause. Can you tell us what neuroblastoma is for everybody? Yeah, so neuroblastoma is a, is a cancer that you, is the most common cancer in kids under four. Mm-hmm. And um, it usually starts in your adrenal gland. It, it's not a brain tumor, um, but it starts in your nervous system outside your brain and usually starts in the abdomen and can spread from there. And it's, it's extremely aggressive. If you have stage four neuroblastoma and it doesn't respond to treatment right away, you you um, typically don't survive. But there's also a type of neuroblastoma called 4S, which if you get diagnosed with that, it just spontaneously disappears one day. Jeez, and the doctor, yeah, the doctors don't know why, but if they they're trying to figure out what causes it to do that, because if they can figure out what causes that cancer just to spontaneously disappear, couldn't they make other neuroblastomas right, disappear? Right. Sure. Sure. Wow. Okay. So, so Tony has, has neuroblastoma. He's been in the hospital since April and you said you went to go see him. Yeah. So Tony had, Tony was cured from his neuroblastoma. Maybe he's, he's a uh, four, 14, 15. I think he was, he went, he was cured when he was four. And then two years ago, he needed a kidney transplant as a result of the chemotherapy because his mm-hmm. kidneys were damaged from the chemotherapy. So he got a kidney transplant. His dad donated one kidney and after Tony got the kidney transplant, he started having these stomach aches and come to find out he got post-transplant lymphoma. So it's a rare side effect of getting a, a, oh. an organ transplant. So he's fighting his second cancer. He's on the last treatment Oof. for that. Okay. It's the, the cancer's gone. He needs one more treatment just to make sure it stays away. And, 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 and he gets the last treatment and his bowel perforates and he is hospitalized in the ICU with this infection. He was in a coma for months, you know, and then the, the lymphoma came, came back. They ended up treating it again. He's in remission again, but he was in a coma for months. And so now he's got months and months and they, they, they didn't think he was going to live. But now, you know, he's up, he's awake, he's talking, he's somewhat paralyzed because he was in a coma for so long. Now they got to get his muscles working again. And so all of these things Whoa. that are happening to him now are a result of the chemotherapy that he got when he was... Uh, a very young kid. I've never really th- thought about that, but it makes so much sense. I mean, you know, your your body is change is changing so much until you're, you know, uh, arguably 18, 19 years old, yeah. which is exactly uh what what chemo is made to attack is changes uh you know, your your cells changing uh sometimes too much or out of hand or too large. That's one I, I I think often of and I feel like I've said this in, in previous episodes on for other topics, but there's things we're going to look back on just like we look back on now where we, you know, we look back on the difference in medicine between World War One and World War Two, and, and mm-hmm. how World War One we didn't have penicillin uh, or even or even anesthetics. Uh, so we gave guys some whiskey and bite down on this and we cut <laughs> their leg off. And it was the best way to stop an infection. And I'm glad right. someone figured out how to do that. But I feel like chemo is the same way where we're going to feel lucky we had something, but look back on it as this sort of barbaric very blunt sort of nuclear option and go I, I can't i can't believe that's what we put people through much less children who not only uh took it harder but it affected their body two-thirds of them it affected their body for for the long term that's that's pretty incredible 
the way the wave of the future and the, it's starting now for for cancer is um, targeted therapies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get into that. Progress so clearly has been that, made. Therapies that attack the cancer and leave the rest of the body alone, right? And you know that's the wave of the future for kids certainly and adults. And there there are some that are out there and they're amazing when they work. They don't work on everyone. So, and there's not going to be one magic bullet for all cancers. It's going to be these targeted therapies for not even individual types of cancers, but subtypes where this therapy is going to work on a subtype of one cancer. It could even work on a subtype of many cancers. And, And that's what we need. That's what we're working towards. And we're getting there. So I want to hear in a, in a minute a little bit more about specifically what Alex is 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 working on in that front because I know you guys are doing some pretty pretty cool shit and you know immunology is is forefront. I mean J- Jim Ellison just won the won the Nobel for yeah. that, which is pretty amazing. So a little more generally, besides what you guys are working on in the past, let's talk about the past fourteen years. What progress has been made in fighting these type of kid cancers over the years? So what has changed? Uh, I guess since you got started. I think one of the big things that's changed is the genomics work that they're doing on cancers when a kid is diagnosed so that they know more about the tumor and what treatments might work and what treatments might not work so that they, you know, if they can do the genomic sequencing on the tumor and know that this tumor is going to be resistant to a particular type of chemotherapy, let's not expose the kid to it and make them sick. And when it's not going to do anything, but, you know, hurt their body in the short term, in the long term. I think that's one thing. So that and wasn't then, happening? That wasn't happening 13 no, years ago? Okay. No, no, not at all. You know, we, we, we recently put on a conference where we brought in the top childhood cancer researchers all into one place. And, and one of the things, you know, one of the, one of the lectures that I was listening to, I'm kind of glad I didn't hear it when Alex was diagnosed, but basically, you know, I was looking at the charts and, and basically what it showed was that the, the exact type of cancer that Alex had, she really had no chance at surviving. And we weren't uh, told that then because they didn't uh, know that much, sure. but because of, because of the stage she was at in the, in the different mutations that she had, she basically probably had a 5% chance at survival where at the time we were told she probably had a 50% chance of survival. How does that how does that make you feel now? Which would you have rather heard? I would have rather heard the fifty percent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because the you know, hearing five percent it just beats you down. Sure. You know. And it actually brought tears to my eyes when I saw the chart. Just thinking back that, you know, she really had no chance and you know, she always believed that she had a chance to survive and and so did we, because we just were glass half full type of people. Right. And, you know, when she had this cancer, one thing that we learned was you make the most of every single day, mm-hmm. you know, so you come home and you don't have plans to do something. You just do it, you know, because <laughs> you don't know if you have tomorrow. You don't know if she's going to be sick tomorrow. And every time we tried to plan a vacation or an outing or anything, she would get sick. So we would just do things spur of the moment. Right. Man. So. Talk, talk to me about other uh, other advances and innovations that have happened in the 14 years. And then if you can sort of interweave how you guys, how the organization started to push its way into actually influencing these, uh, this research and these innovations. And then we'll, we'll skip up to this concert, which or the concert conference, <laughs> it feels like a rock concert uh, that you guys had, which I, I wish I had been a fly in the wall at. Um, so yeah, just talk us through how that's evolved. So 
Oh, you know, sometimes things happen sort of serendipitously. So, you know, one of one of the very exciting advances in for for Alex's type of cancer, and it, and it wouldn't have helped her, but it, it's helped a lot of kids. So, this researcher that we know well, she got a call one day, and it was from a family, a uh, childhood cancer family, and they said, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically said. Well, I don't know if this will be interesting to you or not, but we've had, I think it was three or four cousins that have all had neuroblastoma. You know, is there anything that our family could contribute to the greater good wow. you know, for other people with neuroblastoma? And the doctor said, well, I, I would love to get blood samples from everybody in the family who's surviving and even those who maybe even didn't have neuroblastoma. Sure. And so she did genomic sequencing on, on all the blood from this one family, and they all had the same mutation in every cell of their body called an ALK mutation and um, ALK. And so the doctor did, did some research online and realized that there was a pharmaceutical company that was doing a trial for lung cancer with a drug that, that went after this ALK mutation. And so she talked to the drug company and um, the drug company agreed to release some of the drugs for, for kids. And so she opened this trial and I think the f- the first st- phase one trial in kids you need much much smaller populations than adults. Mm-hmm. The first the first phase either had nine or eleven kids. It was actually it was, it was eleven oh. kids, and they either had neuroblastoma or they had this lymphoma that was resistant to treatment that was um, ALK positive. And so the eleven kids got it, and and then one girl Edie was in much much like um, Alex, where Alex ran out of treatments when she was uh, about four, and Edie was was about four and she had run out of treatments and Alex got her first clinical trial and Edie got her first clinical trial. And so Edie took this medicine, tasted disgusting. Okay. Mm-hmm. So she took it, took it by mouth. Um, and she went, at, she took it for a month and and then she went and got an MRI. And, you know, when you have a kid with cancer and it's time to get scans, it's huge amount of anxiety on the parents and oh, the kid. Yeah. Sure. And usually the sign is if it's a quick MRI, it's a good thing. If it's a long MRI, then things are not going well. Mm-hmm. Well, Edie's parents were in the waiting room one hour, two hours. The doctor came out and said it's going to be another hour, three hours. <sighs> so they're freaking out. And so the, you know, they go into the room with the doctor afterwards and the doctor says, I don't know how to tell you this, but um, I'm sorry it took so long. You know, I went down and I talked to radiology and they told me that the surgery went well, and I told them there wasn't surgery. You got the wrong, you got the wrong scans there, but her cancer's gone. What? So the reason the reason it took so long is because we scanned her entire body because we were trying to figure out where the cancer moved to. Right, right. Her cancer disappeared after be, a month of taking this uh, this oral medicine. Oh my God! Whoa! And so you can imagine those parents who went from thinking, <sighs> you know, the cancer had spread to being told that the cancer was gone. And so get back to that family that, that called this researcher, they saved these kids' lives, right? Yeah, sure. Had she not figured that out, then these kids wouldn't have, wouldn't have survived. And of those 11 kids that got the treatment, nine of them survived. My God. And, and, when, and when was that? Yeah. That was about six years ago. And, and how are they doing since? Do we have any idea? Well, I, I, you know, I know Edie very well. I know another kid, Zach, very well. They're both doing great. Those are the two kids out of the nine who survived that, that we know well. And so the amazing thing about this medicine was it was a pill. 
The kids didn't lose their hair. They didn't feel sick to their stomach. They didn't have to stay overnight in the hospital. It targeted that one mutation. It didn't harm the rest of their body. Okay. And, and, and they were in a phase one trial. They were just trying, trying to figure out what the right dose was. They weren't expecting it to work. Sure. That, that wasn't even developed for them. This was, like you right. said, a little bit of alchemy. Yeah, it was developed for lung cancer because you can't, a, a drug company can't make any money on a childhood cancer drug for the most part because there's right. not enough kids. Right. You know, it costs hundreds of millions of dollars to develop a drug. Sure. And so Edie took that drug for four years, maybe five years, and then um, they didn't know what to do. And so they had her stop taking it. And, um, you know, we saw them a couple of months ago and her cancer is still gone. Oh my God. Yeah. I think she's in like, she's in fourth grade now maybe. And she's doing amazing. And then, and then Zach, he had lymphoma. He was so sick that, you know, uh, his, his brother came home from college to say goodbye to him. They thought he was dying and he started taking this pill and now he's, he's an all-star baseball player in in middle school. So what's going on with this treatment now? So it's still being used. Is it, is it on a larger scale or more kids using it? Now they're using it smarter where they do the genomic testing on the kid to see if they have the ALK mutation. So you can have an ALK mutation in the tumor or you can have it in every cell of your body. And so they test the kid to see which one they have. And if they have it in every cell of their body, then they get the the drug. And actually, they're on the second or third generation of it now. So it's actually even better. Wow. But again, they're using it smarter rather than on everybody. The cool thing is... um, you know, we gave this doctor funding to speed up the trial. So from sure. the discovery of this mutation to the clinical trial was only 18 months. It was a year and a half, which, is, as you know, in medicine, that's very, yeah, that seems very fast. Yeah. Wow. Very fast. So that's that's a, a situation where you guys started to get in, involved and really start funding these things. Again, and that was a little bit alchemy, but once it was recognized, you were able to help push it along. So uh, like you said, Developing kids' cancer drugs is is not profitable, so the drug companies don't do it because capitalism, which is on one hand understandable, on the other infuriating. Is that why they only get four percent of? Well, that's the other thing. So on the other that, that that's private companies, but okay. on the other hand, kids' cancer gets four percent of, of federal funding. So oh, right, wh- where I, I'm assuming the answer to this is Alex's Lemonade Stand <laughs> yeah. Foundation. But so of the innovations that have happened in the past 10, 14 years, where does the funding for these things? come from? I think they scrap it together. You know, there are childhood cancer researchers who get government grants, but there's a lot of philanthropy. So either Alex's Lemonade, there's some other organizations or a family who, whose kid has cancer that decides to fundraise for the doctor that helped them. There's a lot of that going Mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. And I think the real opportunity, you know, I don't blame, I don't blame pharmaceutical companies. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they need to turn a profit or they, unless they're a nonprofit pharmaceutical company, right? Because otherwise they wouldn't exist for anybody's benefit. Sure. But uh, the real potential for childhood cancer is either to get the government to give more than 4% or to find targets for cancers that would help kids, but also have an implication in an, in an adult disease or some other kind of disease. It doesn't even have to be cancer. You know, there could be a treatment that be used in some chronic disease where the big money is like diabetes or heart disease that could help cancer. You never know. You know, the, the problem with cancer is it's, you treat it and then you either die or, or it's gone. It's not, it's usually not a drug that you're on for the rest of your life. Yeah. And if the drug you're on for the rest of your life, then they can, they can make money on it. Right. Right. It, so, so is that why the, uh, the amount uh, of funding from 
you know, federal funding is so low is because it, it there's, it's only, it, it only would help children. It wouldn't help everybody who has cancer. I think, although I don't agree with that, I think that's what the reason behind it. Because okay. you make discovery in, in childhood cancer where you have basically, you know, the kids getting cancer, there's not a lot of other noise going on because they haven't been exposed to different chemicals and environmental things throughout their life. So I think it's, it's a good model for adult cancers. But I think the reason it only gets 4% is because people look and go, well, listen, you know, look, there's, you know, how many hundred thousands of cases of lung cancer and breast cancer and prostate cancer. So there's more, it's impacting more people. So we want to, we want to help them. But if you look at life years lost to cancer, that's where, you know, childhood cancer has a bigger, a bigger um, right. impact because, you know, if a kid dies at four, you know, that's 80 years of life lost. Mm-hmm. If, you know, if a, if a man who's 80 dies from prostate cancer, it's five years of life loss. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, um, and if you talk, you talk to any adult with cancer and you say to them, would you rather have a treatment that could save your life or would you rather, rather have a treatment for that kid that you saw in radiation oncology's life? I would say eight out of 10, nine out of 10 are going to say, I'd rather give the kid a chance. Sure. Has it always been like that? Has the funding always been that low or has that changed over time? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's always been that like that. Are there specific, are you guys or anyone else doing any specific lobbying to increase that? There's people who try it. Um, there's people who are working on it. We don't, we don't get into lobbying. It's, it's just not the beast. That, that interests us. Sure. Well, we really are, we, we really want to get these targeted therapies because one thing that we haven't talked about is the rest of the world, right? Mm-hmm. 250,000 kids in the world develop cancer. We don't even say die are diagnosed because there's parts of the world where kids die and they never get diagnosed. Oh, sure. right. Many, many parts of the world, even if a kid gets diagnosed with cancer, they're not going to be able to get the treatment because of the side effects from the chemotherapy. You know, it, it exposes kids to infections and they don't have the, sure. the infrastructure to protect the kid. But if we, can get, if we can get targeted therapies where the kids aren't going to get massive infections, then we could treat kids everywhere. That'd be yeah. incredible. <laughs> Take a pill. Yeah. It sounds like magic. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jay, how, over the years, how, you know, how has uh, your focus changed or, or how has the, the foundation's uh, focus changed at all? Any, any specific moments or, or, you know, specific cases or children that have sort of pushed you guys one way or another? I think when you have, when you have successful stories, it makes you want to do more of that. Yeah. And so we, we've had some of those, both, you know, the kids who, who you meet like Edie or Zach that have been saved or the research projects. You know, we, we were an early funder in a project that at the time was uh, considered pretty far out there. And, um, you know, my wife and I, we don't make the decisions on projects to fund. We have the best scientists help us make those yeah. decisions. And so this guy came to us with this with this uh, project that he had been working on, but he needed funding. He thought that he could trick the body into thinking that the cancer was actually polio. And since we all get a polio vaccine, that it would fight off the cancer on its own. Mm-hmm. Wow! It was you know it was considered a little bit crazy, and um, and so we gave him we gave him some seed funding, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars. And he was successful. And the story's been on 60 Minutes a couple of times where he has tricked 
these these patients' bodies into thinking that their brain tumors were were polio, and the body just started fighting it off on its own. And so, those kind of successes. I mean, what? That's insane. That's, that's incredible. That that really is. It's those people who go. Hey, okay, maybe, and this is, I feel like so critical in just a larger conversation on our education system, but but yeah. teaching children and people to, instead of saying, well, it's not A, it's not B, maybe it's not A plus B, maybe it's like A plus peanut butter is what's going <laughs> right. to get us there. And then all of a sudden you you have this moment, which uh, again, I, I, I assume many of these uh, situations are similar to any startup, which is that they fail. But in, in situations like that, it's incredible. And you have no idea what you're going to find. But it's so obvious, isn't it? Right. Polio was eradicated. So your body, you know, if your body gets exposed to polio, it fights it off for the most part. <laughs> Although we're seeing now some other weird disease coming around this polio-like. Right, yeah, I saw that. I think, well, the body's always on the lookout for polio. Let me try to trick it. And, uh, you know, it's just... It's so cool. This is one yeah. of those. I wish we we need to start having recurring segments where I go, Brian. How would you fig- start to figure out from step one to <laughs> teach a body to think that cancer is polio? Step one, literally the first thing. I mean, I can't. It's oh god. This people. is like that exercise. I think I had to do this in school where your teacher was like, "Tell me how step by step how do you make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich?" And everybody fucks it up. Everybody fucks it up. Right. But this is you know cancer. So, but except it's yeah right. Oh Got my. It. So Jay, all right, uh, let's Wait, talk. Just- just moving on that, it reminds me yeah. of the time where um, I was invited to go for a run. And then I, when I got there, I realized it was straight up a hill. <laughs> and um, Look, man, and you I didn't tell imagined, me you were injured ahead of time. <laughs> I just imagined it was, a, it was a straight, flat run. Sure. And I the, first, the person f- that was with me had to stop because their Achilles hurt. Look, we were both injured that day. Let's just leave it out there. <laughs> this is fun. Okay? This is fun. Yeah, I'm glad this is good for you. Brian, you're coming on the next Yeah, one. our mutual friend Quinn here is trying to get me to do something called a Spartan race. Yeah, it's going to be great. Do it. It's You got to see what <laughs> you're you made said? Don't do it. <laughs> good, good, good. Thanks, Jay. Um, all right, so let's fast forward a little bit. Talk to me about this conference. What, 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 did, what were you guys getting into? This sounds uh, pretty amazing. Okay, so the way that we have always funded up until this point right. is... Researchers apply to us with mm-hmm. an idea, mm-hmm. and then scientists analyze the proposals and score them, and we fund the best ones. And 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 just for quick context, how many grants and and uh, and institutions and such have you guys funded uh, in the past, and are you currently funding on average? So at any given time, we're probably funding a hundred. Okay, so Damn. we've done about a thousand. And, you know, the small ones would be $100,000 and the big ones would be like a million and a half bucks. Okay. Wow. Okay. So what you get from that is you get some very creative ideas. Mm -hmm. And if you were going to plot them on a map, they would be sort of spread out all over the place. Like, because we don't really restrict what what their idea is, except for it's childhood cancer. But they could take any approach at all. Mm -hmm. But you get some really innovative and creative ideas. And so... As we've grown, the thing that has always bothered us is, you know, coming from the business world, you would never approach a business problem that way where you just told your staff, yeah, give us creative ideas and (laughs) just do some of them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You would approach it in an organized, in a methodical way. Mm -hmm. So what we said was, let's bring 100 of the best minds in childhood cancer together and tell them they've got $25 million to spend. How would you approach 
your problem. And we, and we identified eight problems mm-hmm. in child cancer. And what were uh, they? They were, so six of them were, were, were cancer types. So neuroblastoma, high-risk neuroblastoma, high-risk leukemia, two different types of high-risk brain tumors, uh, two different types of high-risk sarcomas, mm-hmm. and then clinical trials and big data. Okay. And so we, we said, listen, how would you approach your problem if you were going to sort of chart it out and map it out? Identify the key things that you would get done first. Figuring if we can get those key things done first, it's going to help all the other researchers do their job. Because why should you do what, what should be done seventh first when you should be, right. be doing mm-hmm. what should be done first first? And so it was really cool. It was really amazing. We saw some recurring themes that kept coming back. And so, you know, over the next couple of years, we're going to fund these. We're, we, we've committed to spending $25 million on these ideas to, to move things forward. And, you know, we want things that, we want projects that once they're done, they're done and people don't have to worry about figuring out those topics again. You know, it's going to help the greater community. And so it's, it's pretty cool stuff. You know, some of, the, some of the ideas that kept coming back is single cell genomics. Mm-hmm. So when you do genomics on a tumor, you're not necessarily seeing the whole picture, right? Because you're just seeing the picture of the spot that you're actually, you actually did that biopsy from. There could be something else totally different going on in a different part of the tumor. Mm-hmm. So we want to we take single cells from different parts of the tumor and do the genomics on there because it could tell you something totally different about the patient. Sure. Another cool thing is monitoring tumors by taking just regular blood. And so we, we become sophisticated enough where for some cancers, you can actually monitor the tumor activity by just doing a regular blood draw wow. and looking for circulating tumor cells within that blood. And the way you do that is different for every cancer. So they don't know how to do it for a lot of childhood cancers, but we could um, theoretically pay to get that done so that we can then could monitor these kids just by simple blood draws, which they get every week anyways. And you would know what's going on inside them. You wouldn't have to um, give them anesthesia to get an MRI. You wouldn't have to wonder sure. what's on the biopsy. Just sure. take some blood. So it's pretty oh, cool stuff. Wow. And so what, uh, what were some of the really uh, constructive, uh, pragmatic outcomes from, from the conference? Well, it's only been a little over a month. Okay. So we're still narrowing down the final the final sort of ideas from each group, but they had they actually have a deadline of uh, December first to get those final ideas to us. So they Couple have two more weeks. weeks. Yeah, two more weeks. But we're really excited about this because I think it's, we're going to get some incredible things out of there. Were there yeah, some I, collaborations that surprised you? Well, yes. You know, the, the, well because because some recurring themes kept coming back and from from the different cancer types. So we actually want these groups, and we're highly encouraging them to um, do some cross-pollination, work together. doesn't matter if you're studying brain tumors, you may have the same problem as somebody, somebody studying sarcomas or leukemia. So you got to talk to each other. And that's one of the things that came out of this was they realized that there's a lot to be learned from people. They know all the people that are studying the same cancers as them. They don't necessarily know the people that are studying different cancers. And so by sitting them down in the same rooms, they've realized that they can learn from, from other people outside of their specific, specific subspecialties. That's so cool. I cannot wait to see. And, and what are you guys doing to sort of 
keep track of that, I guess, uh, and, and publish the advances that come out of these things or, or how, how the research goes. Yeah, so we're going to publish a white paper that um, so the whole community knows what, what we're doing once we figure out what, what the priorities are for each group, mm-hmm. we're going to, you know, we're, we're going to be very transparent about, about these and what we're doing and what we're in how, and how the funding is working and everything. So it, it can only benefit the entire community. The other thing that is really cool is big data, mm-hmm. you know, and we're getting into big data big time right now. Yeah, Didn't you guys build <laughs> the matrix or something like that for kids <laughs> cancer, basically? Yeah, I mean, we, so we we opened up our own lab, but it doesn't use test tubes and beakers. It uses computers and computer programmers to mm. do research and to help researchers. And it's really, it's pretty wild. These people are so smart. It makes me a little bit scared to be around them. But um, the problem, one of the problems with childhood cancer is the the data they have is not is not huge enough. Mm-hmm. Right, because you have all of these researchers in their own labs doing doing their research, but they're they don't have the benefit of other researchers that are doing the same kind of research in a different lab. Sure. And so, what our the first thing that our team is doing is they're harmonizing all of the data that's available in the public domain, and so it's something like three million three million tissue samples that are available in the public domain, but you can't compare them because it's like looking at apples and oranges because mm-hmm. The people that have put the the information there didn't take care about how they how they published the data, and so they're using our, our our team is using artificial intelligence to harmonize all this data, and then they're making it freely available to um, scientists worldwide. And so our goal for doing it was for childhood cancer, but really it has implications for any any scientists, especially with rare diseases. Sure. Yeah, that seems only good to be able to see all the other work that's happening and compare it and see what works and what doesn't. Right. Right. Like you could make a discovery that, you know, something, some, some completely different disease has similarities to the disease you're studying. Right. And maybe there's a drug that's being used in that disease and maybe it'll work on yours. Right. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, what, what are the odds? Who, who, who knows? But if you don't put it all together, it won't happen. That's, that's pretty incredible. All right. So Jay, moving on to the action portion here, you guys, so much of your fundraising comes from how many lemonade stands are there a year? Tens of thousands. That's pretty. I don't actually know how many, but thousands and thousands. Pretty amazing. We have a whole team. That's all they do is work with lemonade stand hosts. That's, that's incredible. Um, Well, listen, our listeners are pretty activated. They've spent the past couple of years, uh, maybe marching for the first time or throwing their money to 50 different places that, cause the world's on fire. Hopefully that's calming down a little bit, but we, you know, want to point them in the right direction in really specific ways so they can, as we say, take action with their voice, their vote, and their dollars. So let's talk about their voice. Uh, one of our goals is to shine a light on, you know, where we need to go as, as a people. And a lot of time, pros and cons, that comes down to our elected representatives. What you, you guys aren't interested or, or working on lobbying yourselves, but, you know, voters can do that in their own way. That's how democracy is supposed to work. So what are the big actionable questions the rest of us should be asking of our representatives? Well, I think making childhood cancer a priority is is important. And I think I think it's a relatively low-hanging fruit in that a little bit of money can go a long way. And who doesn't want to help kids with cancer? When you think of you know the worst diseases that we have here in the United States, people cancer is always at the top of a lot of people's list, right? Mm-hmm. When you, you see a kid 
it makes it even worse. So mm-hmm. one of the problems that we've had with, with childhood cancer is there's bills passed in, in Congress mm-hmm. and they never get funding. So they're passed, but they, they never get to the funding part of it. So tell your Congress people, tell your senators, fund the childhood cancer initiatives. Don't just pass them. Actually right. give funding. You know, because the government giving money, you know, they can dwarf what Alex's can do with, sure. the, right. with the signature of one pen, right? Sure. Right. But I think sometimes, sometimes, you know, politicians want to be seen supporting something and they pass it. But if it doesn't have funding, then there's really nothing there. Sure. Hmm. And I guess that applies to, applies to how we use our vote as well. And in, 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 in what, what do you feel like we should be looking for in candidates going forward? I guess, who are the models and, and your allies that are out there? Are there any? <laughs> well, I want to talk about something different, and that's pre-existing conditions. Yes, mm. please, let's do that. Absolutely. Okay. So I'm more familiar with this part of childhood cancer. Pre-existing conditions is huge with childhood cancer patients. Because as we talked about, two-thirds of childhood cancer survivors have lifelong side effects. Mm-hmm. And without the coverage of pre-existing conditions, these kids are either going to die or they're going to live. And they're going to be broke. They're going to live and be broke or have a horrible quality of life mm-hmm. because they're, going to have, they're just going to live with these problems because they can't afford to get the treatment they need. So if I'm going to tell your listeners one thing, it's to support people who support pre-existing conditions. 100%, no, no uh, asterisks next to that. It's got to be 100% coverage of pre-existing conditions. It really does dial it in the, the statistic about two thirds of kids, and and it really you know you dial it down to a more personal level. And I remember when when this was, and it's still a, a debate, which is insane, but uh, at least it's it's still partially a law. But it, it's incredible. Before it wasn't, you know, it made you go like, do these people not know anybody with a preexisting right. condition? You can't know somebody with one or someone that has been denied coverage because of one, much less a fucking child. And and vote against right. it. You can't as a human being, uh, and it's just in, it doesn't it's just, make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. What's the benefit of not covering a pre-existing condition to make the insurance company more money? Right. That's the only benefit. So their dollar. How can our listeners best contribute to kick cancer in the balls? And I guess if we're going to talk about Alex's specifically here too, um, I know you guys also fund a bunch of travel. So if you could talk about that for just one sec. One thing that. Most people would never know, and we certainly never knew. I didn't even know childhood cancer was a thing before Alex got diagnosed. I thought it was a thing of the past, right? Sure. But with childhood cancer, you can't get the same treatment everywhere. The treatment you get is based upon where you live. And mm-hmm. so if your kid is first diagnosed with cancer, you probably are going to get the same treatment everywhere. But if their cancer is resistant to that treatment or they relapse, there's different treatments everywhere in the country. And so what? Why? So 80%, I think it's 70 or 80% of kids that get childhood cancer are on a clinical trial. Oh, oh, wow. And so even if it's standard treatment, sometimes it's a clinical trial. And not every, not every hospital can, right. can run a clinical trial. Cool. And so if your kid, is, if your kid relapses or they, or they have uh, a cancer that never goes into remission, they call it no evidence of disease in childhood cancer. If they never go into no evidence of disease, 
they have to probably either go into a phase one or a phase two clinical trial. And there's only a handful of institutions around the country that that do phase ones. And there's there's a few more that do phase phase two. And so what happens is the family has to make a decision. Are they willing to move? Are they willing to travel back and forth to get to a hospital that has more treatment options? And so one of the things, it's something that we had to do. All right. So when Alex was diagnosed, we lived, we lived, we lived in the Northeast. We lived in Connecticut. We went to Boston for a second opinion. We went to New York City for a third opinion. Those were both within about, you know, 80 miles of us. Right. Mm-hmm. We got three different opinions on how to treat her. Okay. So they weren't even going to give her the same treatments. And then after a couple of years, they all agreed that um, on, the, on the treatment to give her. And that was none. They said, you know, don't give her anything. Let her die. <sighs> and then one doctor pulled us aside and said, listen, I think there's a doctor in Philadelphia that could help you guys. I don't want you to tell my colleagues that I told you this, but you should, you should give them a call. And so by going from Connecticut down to Philadelphia for our first clinical trial, it didn't save Alex's life, but it added four years onto it. Right. Wow. Had we stayed in Connecticut, she would have died. But by coming to Philly, she lived for four more years, which is a long time. And so what we do at the foundation now is we'll pay for families who need to travel for treatment. We'll pay that travel. We can't pay for the treatment, but we can pay for the travel for them to take that out of the equation because that should not be a decision maker. Right. You know, the family may decide that their kid has seen enough treatment and they don't want to treat them anymore. That's, that's their decision, but whether they can afford to get there should not be one of the variables that they're considering. So we take that out of the equation. We'll pay for them to get there and get the treatment. So that's just any family that this this problem comes up, they ha- they can then you know sort of contact you and, and say here's what's going on and, and then and you can and you can help them out. Yeah, I mean it's usually through the through their social worker right, at their, right. or at the hospital where they're going. Wow. The average family that we help through this makes thirty four thousand dollars a year. Yeah, so pretty helpful uh, <laughs> that you're there, Jesus. You know, wow. some of them make more, but the average is thirty four thousand. If you have, if you make thirty four thousand a year, you can't afford to travel for treatment. No, you can't afford Not, to do a lot of things. Let, yeah, less. let alone be one person, but tra- tra- you know, change your whole family tra- or, or uh, transition your whole family to another city. That's wild, right? Can I tell you a quick story? Please, Jesus. please. So, I was traveling for work. I was in Houston. I get an email from this doctor in Boston and he basically said, Hey Jay, not sure if you remember me, you guys gave me a grant a few years ago to do some research. Um, I'm emailing you. I need a favor. I have a patient who has relapsed leukemia and we have no treatment options for him in Boston. And so if you have no treatment options in Boston, that's a big deal because they're one of the medical centers of the, of the, of the country. He said, uh, this was a Tuesday night. He said, I have an appointment that I made for this family in Philadelphia um, on Thursday morning. So it was basically one day away. Right. The problem is they don't have a credit card and they don't have a car and they don't have a way to get from Boston to Philly, which is about 300 miles. So mm-hmm. not, not that far. Is there any way that you could fast track them with your travel for care program? And so there's a clinical trial going on in Philly that I'm very familiar with. And it's it cures about 90% of people with relapsed leukemia. So this kid stays in Boston. He has a 0% chance of survival. He comes to Philly and gets into this trial. He has a 90% chance of survival for the cost of getting them 300 miles. That's a no-brainer, right? Right. So we get the the family to Philly. 
and uh, the kid got into the clinical trial. So wow. that's amazing. Pretty, pretty awesome. Like yeah. that one little thing, literally saved his life. One little thing. Wow. Jeez. That's incredible. The crazy thing about this treatment is it's immunotherapy. And the way you know if it's working is the patient usually goes into a coma. So, you know, you have to tell the family going in, listen, this is going to be a tough treatment, especially if it works, because if it works, the patient's going to be in a coma for a little while. Whoa. How scary is that? Yeah, that's wild. But that's wow. a sign of good things happening. <laughs> wow. All right. Well, <laughs> okay. So that, so that is essential. So, so Jay, where are they going to go to, to contribute to, to save lives here? You know, if you want to contribute to help kids with cancer, I mean, you can certainly do it through Alex's Lemonade and go to our website, alexslemonade.org. We have a motto that anybody can be part of Team Alex. We have tons of different ways that people can get involved, Mm -hmm. you know, ranging from making a donation to hosting their own fundraiser to coming to one of our fundraisers. So we make it easy for people to get involved and engaged and get their kids involved and get their schools involved. So. And if you don't want to give to Alex's, give to another childhood cancer organization. Sure. I love oh, it. Yeah, that's awesome. That's doing good work. Research to make sure they're doing good work first. Right, right. Of course. Awesome. Um, and obviously, we'll put all that stuff in the show in notes. In the show here. notes. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, this is, wow. This is incredible. This has been yeah. an amazing conversation. We, we, we know we've kept you for a little bit, and uh, uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up here a little bit. But first of all, just thank you so much, Jay. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It was um, interesting. Um, you know, you guys are you guys are pretty special. <laughs> Easy now. Um, <laughs> hey, I have a, I have I have a quick question. Oh boy, this could be anything. No, well, sure. How how did you got how did Alex and you guys raise thousands of dollars selling lemonade? Like when you first started doing it, That's just, uh, this whole time, I'm, my mind is blown. I don't. So this this was crazy. So when she's she kept asking us to set up this lemonade stand, and we kept. When she first asked us, she was getting a, a stem cell transplant in the hospital and it was in the winter. And we said, oh, like not a good time for lemonade. Yeah, not a good time for lemonade. Right. So she kept pestering us when she got out of the hospital. <laughs> and finally, one day my wife said, what do you want to buy? I'll just buy it for you. I don't, you know, you don't need to set up a lemonade stand. She said, no, I want to give it to the doctors. So they can come up with, she, she said, I want to give it to the doctors so they can come up with treatments like the one I got in Philadelphia. So that first treatment she got in Philadelphia impacted her so much. Right, right. This, this is a crazy story. When she went into the hospital for that first treatment, she was on morphine 24 hours a day. The cancer was as high as her neck and as low as the bones in her left foot. And so she went in for this experimental treatment that required her to be in isolation inside a lead room where the walls and the ceiling and the floor are made of lead, covered in plastic, behind a lead shield. And then anything that goes into the room has to be thrown away. And then they injected her with this radioactive liquid and it went through her, her bloodstream and attached to the neuroblastoma from the inside and radiated it from the inside out. And how old was she? She was three and she was almost four, but she was like an old lady. So she was, she was, she was pretty mature for a three-year-old. <laughs> she was like five-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> and so she had to stay in this room until she was no longer radioactive. And, and it took three days. Only one of us could go in at a time. We had to wear a radiation meter in case we were exposed to the radiation. And, um, and when she got out, three days later, she said two things. This was right after Thanksgiving. So the two things she said were that treatment worked. And Liz said, what do you mean the treatment worked? She said, I could tell by the way I feel. 
And then she said she wanted to go shopping for a Christmas dress. And she was completely off pain medicine. So that treatment wow. impacted her so much. She wanted to set up this lemonade stand to right. help, those, help those doctors. And so we didn't want her to be disappointed when we finally realized why she was doing it. We didn't want her to be disappointed. So we both come from large families. And so my wife was calling all the siblings and telling them to go over. <laughs> go on down, yeah. <laughs> and one of the siblings called the newspaper. That's why so many people came. Oh. And so we, so Alex, I think the, it was, she was supposed to open at 10. And um, she was so excited that she laid out her clothes the night before. And um, she got out in the front yard by seven. People started coming up. And actually, when we woke up in the morning, people had left stuff on the front on the front porch. And so, so many people came. Some of them had smiles. Some of them had tears. But they just kept coming and coming and coming. Jeez. And, um, you know, just to round it out, last year, we were going through a crate of old pictures and letters. And we found the letter that she got on that first day from this from this old man who came up and he didn't really say anything to her and he handed her a card and there was a hundred dollars in it mm. and he didn't know her from from anything right right and it said um it said alex your parents sure must be proud of you because i know i am and i always wondered what that man's story was what made him give that hundred dollars sure Wow. Well, <clears throat> I think that's the, uh, that's the thing about cancer. Everybody knows somebody, everybody's lost somebody. A lot of plenty of people have had it themselves. Um, so it does connect us in a lot of ways. And you know, there was certainly a story there and we'll never know what, what his right, was. Right. Sure. Wow. Well, thank you to that gentleman for sure. Where did you, how did you have enough lemonade? We did it. <laughs> I had to I ran out to the store four times. I mean, Brian is so concerned about the <laughs> logistical specifics of how this actually worked. All right, Jay, uh, this has been tremendous. Last couple lightning round yeah, questions yeah. for you here. When was the first time in your life when you realized that you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful? I would say when when my wife convinced us to start Alex's Lemonade. You know, I didn't really think that. You know, up until that point. I had one goal in life and that was to make enough money to buy my parents a house. Mm -hmm. And um, I never was able to do that, but you know, knowing that we can help other kids, it was, it was, it was, it was better than that. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Uh, Jay, who is someone in your life that has positively impacted your work in the past six months? Wow. I would say Tony. Tony, the kid that I talked about earlier, who's been sure, in the yeah, yeah. I work hard every day when I think about Tony. I work even harder. And, um, you know, when I went to see him the other night and seeing what he's overcome, where he didn't talk for six months and now he's talking again, he wasn't able to move his arms and he's moving his arms. And, um, you know, I, I texted his mother and I said, is there anything that I could, that I could, uh, I could bring for you guys? And she said, Tony's had a craving for Swedish meatballs from Ikea. <laughs> I said, I didn't know Ikea sold food. Oh, yeah. Uh, meatballs, ice cream cones, and hot dogs, I think. It was an adventure finding them. And, um, <laughs> you know, when I got to the hospital, I gave him, and he was eating those, those Swedish meatballs when he was on a feeding tube for all those months. That kid makes me a better person. It makes me inspired. It makes me work harder. Wow. Oh, man. That is awesome. And he, and he, he has committed. We have a big event in January called the Lemon Ball. 
Mm-hmm. And last year, he and his family were the volunteers of the year, and he has committed that he is going to be there in January. That is awesome. Hell yeah. That is awesome. So on the other side of this, what do you do specifically when you get overwhelmed by everything? What's, what's your go-to? Some people to walk in the park, some people it's ice cream, some people it's exercise. Yeah. Mine is either go to sleep or go for a run. <laughs> I choose the former. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Running sucks. My first choice is run. But okay. if it's really, really bad, I go to sleep. That's impressive. <laughs> and try to sleep it off. Right. Yeah. Uh, Jay, how do you consume the news? You know, I find myself uh, all, almost all online or on the radio, but um, I find myself more and more getting my news off of Twitter. Yeah. Mm. Because I feel like it, it updates faster and yeah. I don't have patience to wait. <laughs> yeah. You are. Especially uh, when I follow Quinn. Yeah. You don't know. Don't do that, kids. Don't do that. Jay, if you could Amazon Prime one book to Donald Trump, what would it be? Wow. Mm-hmm. Now we've gotten everything from comic books to coloring books to the Constitution and everything in between. And our listeners, we have an Amazon wish list with all of these listed and our listeners go there and they buy them and they get sent straight to the White House. I, so, would, I, I would actually, I would do chicken soup for the soul. Ah, throw, Remember those? Nice throw wow, them. yeah. There's a million There's a of them. A bajillion of them. Yeah. yeah, but the original is the best. Mm-hmm. I love, love it. We'll put I, it on the list. I love that. That's definitely on the list. I love that book. And um, I'm going to tell you a quick story about that book. Please. I, um, we, we have a, a house that we're fixing up that we don't live in. And the contractor was working there. And I knew I wasn't going to be able to see him for a while. So I, I hit a check inside that book. And when he finished the job, I said, uh, you know, I left the check there. And, and it's, it's, in, it's on page 200 of Chicken, chicken Soup for the Soul. <laughs> and he said, Oh, my mother got that book when she had cancer. And when he found it, the check wasn't there. And I was like, I know I left it there. I had two copies of it on the bookshelf. Oh, <laughs> that's pretty amazing. You <laughs> thought I was the cruelest person. Perfect. Yeah. Right. But then, right. Here you're trying to do this really nice thing. And it right. looks like you're an ass. Yeah, oh, that's good. I love it, man. <laughs> uh, all right, Jay. Uh, last question. So uh, we've, like I said, everybody is connected to cancer. And some, we've got plenty of survivors among our listeners, uh, maybe some current patients, people who've lost uh, s- somebody dear to them. I know I, I have. Um, a lot of folks have maybe some with kids, uh, even with these cancers. What what sort of message do you have for them? Sort of a closing statement. Make the most of each day, and uh, you know, take it take it one day at a time, and uh, and just to have hope. There, you can find hope in everything, and if you have hope, you got it all. I love it. I love Sorry, it. that's three things. Nope, that's fine. I mean, you just smashed right through the rules. Uh-huh. Um, I love it. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, where can our listeners follow you and Alex's Lemonade Stand online? So most of our handles are Alex's Lemonade if you want the Alex's Lemonade stuff. So Is it's it just A-L-E-X-S? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lemonade. Yeah, that's how you spell Alex's. Well, yeah. if I was writing it, I would write A-L-E-X apostrophe S, right? Yeah, but Which you can't have that in it. So I'm just clarifying, Gwen, okay. with our guest. Why don't you let our guest finish? Thank you, Jay. Brian, I appreciate you. <laughs> some people do put the apostrophe in, so. I just yeah. assumed. I'm just trying to be, you yeah. know, as clear as possible. Sure. Don't be bullied. <laughs> I like this guy. That's Quinn. a different, that's a different conversation. I like this Jay we have here. Um, so, Alex is Lemonade, or, you know, we're on Instagram, Twitter, and, it, and if you want to follow me, it's Lemonade Jay. 
Awesome. 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 There's no apostrophe in that either. (laughs) Perfect. Great. Well, now I think you're coming at me, Jay. (sighs) It's hard to be a new champ. Jay, Scott, man, we cannot thank you enough for your time today. And obviously, quite obviously, all that you and your wife and your whole organization do. And we will continue to support it in every way that we can. Thank you, guys. I'm a listener for life. Um, Thank you so much. Careful about that. Really awesome. Uh, Look forward to our next jog. (laughs) Or at least Um, until next week. Yeah. Um, All right. Yes. Mm -hmm. I look forward to our next jog also. It's going to be great. I've got a whole new route for us. And maybe Brian. (laughs) I, I will not. Okay. <laughs> All right, Jay. We'll talk to you soon, man. Thank you, Thank Jay, you. so much. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks to our incredible guest today. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. (laughs) And you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. <laughs>